Amen. You can be seated. Amen. And so good to, to just declare over my own heart just that his goodness has been always over my story. Now, as we move towards God's word, if you have a copy of God's word today, we're going to be in John chapter 21. Uh, which is immediately following where we were last week, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Before we get to that, if you're new in the room today, we would love to know that you're here. If you're new watching online for the first time and listening to this for the very first time, tuning in and and wondering and peeking over the fence, what's Bellwether all about? We'd love to know that you're there today. Um, You can fill out the cards in the seat back in front of you or just drop a comment. Drop it in the gift boxes on your way out, and we'll contact you in a respectful way. Now, I want to quickly get to work because I probably have more words than time today. Let's start reading in chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved there Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, and he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not, able, not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it, and bread, Jesus, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was the third time that Jesus had revealed to disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him and the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, that's John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain (laughs) the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this, your word. I pray that it would stir up in our own hearts wonder and amazement that our imaginations would just be provoked of all the mighty and good things that you did while you walked this earth. I pray that in this conversation that we'd be able to appropriate these words to ourselves and ask ourselves honestly, do we love you, Lord? Do we follow you? Do we serve you? Do we tend the things that you tend? Father, I pray that you would let your word by the power of your Holy Spirit penetrate our hearts today, that you would bring cold and numb and dead hearts to life because you alone can do that. And you've regularly used the foolishness of preaching to do that. And so we ask that you do it again. And I pray this in the name and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, of all the the disciples and all the caricatures of the disciples about what they were like and their personalities, I probably, if I were to take some kind of personality test and at the end of the test reveal which disciple that I feel most like, it would most likely be Peter, regularly putting his foot in his mouth, saying things before he had thought about them, (laughs) doing things before he had thought it through. I think of Peter kind of like a bat. He led like a bat, you know. If he saw a wall, he's dodging it to go the other way. Some people lead like eagles. Other people lead like, where are we going? All right, there it is. Let's go this way. And in these words, Jesus, in this one more appearance in the Gospel of John, Jesus is restoring what he had already prophesied about Peter, that he would be this cornerstone, that he would be the one that the whole church would be built on, that through this guy's ministry, the one that's absolutely zealous, that God would accomplish amazing things through this man. Now, just to recap, in the Gospel of John, there's been two appearances to the disciples before this, okay? Four total, first to Mary individually. She has an individual, personal interaction with Jesus. And then Jesus shows up to his disciples two times before this. And this time he shows up and you get both a personal interaction that we don't get to see what it was like when Peter gets to the shore, and then we get this company of disciples listening to a conversation that felt very intimate that they were let in on. Now, I want to just go through a brief history of Peter's zeal, and then we're going to look at this conversation between Jesus and Peter, and then we're going to ask some questions about what does this mean for us today? 
First, let's look at Peter's zeal. Just a brief history of who he is. He's a fisherman before Jesus calls him. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. It's a small detail that's in one of the Gospels. He's following this man that's crazy, right? He's out in the wilderness wearing uh, uh, weird skins and eating locusts and honey. And that's the kind of guy that Peter is after. As he's following him, eventually John declares, this is the Lamb of God. This is the man that's after him. He leaves John the Baptist, starts following Jesus. When he's called to, his brother Andrew comes and tells him, and tells him the word. Listen, we found the Messiah, and, and Peter's like, okay, let's go follow him. He's really self-assured all throughout the Gospels, okay? He's the kind of guy who immediately thinks he knows what he should do and say, okay? He's the guy in the room that's the de facto leader. You know who I'm talking about, right? When everybody's looking around, what are we going to do? He's the guy saying, let's go fishing, and they're all like, I guess that's what we're doing, Okay? And in this little scene from the Last Supper, Jesus begins to tell him, hey, there's going to be a moment coming, Peter, that's going to be bad for you, okay? Peter, at this point, thinks he is like above all the rest of the disciples. When he's looking around at everybody following Jesus, he's like, I'm kind of at the front of the line here. I mean, uh, my wife's grandmother would have said he seems kind of needy, right? Because Jesus says, there's a place I'm going that you can't come. He's like, no, wherever you're going, I'm coming with you, Pete. I'm coming with you, Jesus. I'm following you. Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. There's a place that I'm going that you cannot come with me. He's like, listen, I will go anywhere with you, Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, it says it this way. This is one of uh, the most difficult sayings of Jesus. He describes what's about to happen for Peter like this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, you'll strengthen your brothers. Again, Peter's like not alarmed by this. Uh, Anybody, if you hear Jesus say to you, Satan's about to sift you like wheat, this is most likely not the response you should have. But Peter looks at him and says, look, I'm ready to go to both the prison, to death with you. And Jesus said, listen, Peter, before the rooster cries today, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, still zealous, following Jesus to the garden, falling asleep, not keeping his words. The company of people come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? No, you're not going to take Jesus. I'm willing to fight for Jesus. He cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus is like, look, put away the sword. He puts the ear back on, and Malchus walks away healed, okay? And in all of this, Peter's zeal is just over and over being demonstrated through the gospel. But something happens that Jesus had prophesied, he's sifted like wheat. He's tempted beyond his point of what his affections that he would declare could actually carry him through. Listen, it's really easy to say the right things about Jesus, right? In this moment for Peter, he had not yet been tested. In the moment, even when he cuts off Malchus's ear, he's like, we got to take this crowd. But once he sees that the guy that he's following is getting beaten, accused, and crucified, the tune of his story begins to change. A little girl comes up to him and says, Don't you, aren't you one of those people that was with Jesus? No, not me. Then he's warming himself by the fire. Two times someone comes and says, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? At one point, he even curses his name. He says, I don't know the blankety-blank man. And it's loud enough for people to hear. It says in one of the Gospels that Jesus could hear him. And immediately after this, the rooster crows, and there's Peter remembering the words of Jesus, okay? 
Fast forward. Now Jesus has appeared two times to the disciples with a company of around him. Now, before I look at this conversation between Peter and Jesus, I just want to note a few things before we move on. God is never surprised by the way that you sin against him. I'm going to say that again. He's never shocked by the ways that you might disappoint him. He's not covering his mouth going, I never suspected that you would sin in this way. In fact, he's looking at Peter and saying, you're going to be sifted, and when you turn back to me, you're going to have a testimony, you're going to strengthen other people in the faith. He went to the cross knowing that that Peter had denied him. He died for him anyway. He went to the cross knowing every single way that you would sin against him, the whole conclusion of your life, even the sins you haven't committed, and he died for you anyway. That's the kind of Savior that we have. So, Satan constantly looking for this opportunity to sift someone out, make sure that all the ways that he's accusing someone, he's trying to make it clear that you're not a grain of wheat, you're actually something that needs to be sifted out. And over and over, Jesus had taught this kind of principle in his teaching that that there's going to be a great sifting. There's going to be tares, there's going to be wheat, there's going to be people who have authentic faith, and there's going to be people who don't. And I want you to know that there's an enemy that's coming after all of you that's trying to prove that your faith is not authentic, okay? And that's what Jesus prophesies over Peter, and he says, the enemy's demanded you so that you might be sifted. Now, at the end of this being sifted, it's looking like Peter's not a grain of wheat, okay? It's not looking like he's one of the authentic ones. He just was the guy who had a way in which he could use his words and leadership ability in order to follow Jesus. And other people just followed him. Now, in this moment where Peter is still kind of a de facto leader and they realize that Jesus is sitting on the shore and they realize that, hey, the man who had power to do this before, there's probably some sense of nostalgia that's clicking with him because Jesus had performed a miracle that looked very similar to this at the beginning when he's calling them. And and during their ministry, it said, hey, you fished all night. You can go on this side and find some fish. This isn't the first time that Jesus had done this kind of thing, okay? So once again, they're thinking and recognizing the power of God. Whoever this is on the shore has to be Jesus. And in this moment, this nostalgic, and they're remembering Christ, Peter, having stripped himself, seeing this miracle done before, he jumps in the water before everybody else can get to Jesus. Now, lots of explanations. I like to suspect that maybe he just wanted a private word with Jesus so he could kind of be reconciled so that nobody else would see, right? He wanted to get there and be like, Jesus, I'm really sorry about what I said. Or maybe he was just wanting to get there first. I don't know what the explanation is. I know that God's word is sufficient, and it provokes our imagination to think, hey, Peter was the kind of guy that jumped in the water to get there before the boat. They can't even get the the fish in the boat, and so I don't know how long it would take. They're about 100 yards off, but the, the boat was towed down by the fish, okay? Weighed down. They're treading through the water. So however long it took for Peter to get there, there's this window of time where he's talking alone, with Jesus, and we don't know what was said during that time. Once, once they get the boat there, <laughs> Jesus, in natural form, as he's just shown before that he lives to serve them, washing their feet, he begins to feed them again. He's serving his disciples, demonstrating that he came as a servant. <laughs> so, uh, 
before I move into their conversation, I want you to know this, that there's probably a lot of people who've heard teaching on this, on this conversation about the different kinds of love that happens. Now, if you don't know what we're about to cover and you don't know the difference between agape and, and phileo, look, you're in good company, okay? There's a reason that I'm not going to touch that part of the conversation. So if you think you anticipate what you know is going to be said, I just want you to know I'm probably not going to touch that. D.A. Carson said that those two words could be interchanged dramatically throughout the Gospels. And so there's not like a huge difference between what Jesus is asking in these three questions and what Peter's response is. Now, if that takes something away from what you've been taught before, I'm really sorry. Now let's look at it, okay? Look at John 21, verse 15. It says this, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. Now, he's going to do this three times in this conversation. The first thing I want to point out about the beginning of this conversation is that he doesn't call him Peter. There's only three times that this happens in the Gospels. At the very beginning, when Jesus calls him, he said, Hey, Simon, son of John, I'm going to call you Peter from here on out. Second time he says it, right in the middle of his ministry, Jesus is teaching some really hard things. People are falling away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, What about you? What do you say about me? And Jesus says, You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus once again calls him by this name, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Only God could show you that this is true. And now at the very conclusion of this ministry on earth, Jesus calls him like by his first and middle name once again, not by his nickname that he affectionately calls him. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I believe what this means is you always acted in a way as if you were at the front of the line, Peter. You always acted in such a way so that you were declaring your love. You were very demonstrative and you were always saying the right things. Your hands were lifted the highest in worship and you were singing louder than everyone else. But do you love me more than these other guys that are fishing with you? Here in this moment, uh, when Jesus has called him, like we call our kids by their whole name, and he asked them this question, do you love me more than these? I believe he's beginning with Peter's first sin. That he would boast of himself as some extraordinary disciple among the disciples, some extraordinary apostle. And he's basically saying, Peter, are you really some other level than all these other people? And that's a theme that runs throughout. We're going to pick it back up in just a minute. This whole idea that Peter would compare himself and look around and say, well, I'm doing good compared to them. Or I'm doing bad compared to them. Jesus regularly is saying, you need to put that aside. I'm talking to you as an individual today, and I'm asking you this question. Do you love me more than these? So first, he deals with the first failure that he would think higher of himself or more zealous of himself. And then he responds with this, Jesus, you know. You know. Peter still says, yes, yes, I love you. You know that I love you. Your knowledge of my fickle and weak and guilt-stained conscience is more complete than even my own understanding of my love for you, Jesus. And you know that I love you. And he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Tend them, Peter. 
He asked the question again, this time dropping the comparison. Do you love me? Peter's response, exactly the same. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. His command is very similar. Tend my sheep. Then a third time, Jesus asked the question. Look at this. This is in verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, before I move on, I want to just point out this moment with Jesus where he looks at an individual and he asks them the most important question that ever can be asked of any one of us in this room. Do you love him? It is the absolute most important question. Do you love him? And the truth is, sometimes we are not sure, but we know that Jesus knows how fickle our hearts can be, how distant our affections can be, how wavering our attention is. And in this moment, his only response is both grief and the understanding that Jesus knows everything. There's absolutely nothing that can be hidden from his sight. He knows the motives. He understands we're doing things just for our own selfish gain. There's nothing hidden from God. And in this single moment of his life and of ours, there's nothing hidden from his sight. And he says again, you know that I love you. And after telling him what to do, he doesn't tell him to go be an officer in the church. He doesn't tell him to be a deacon or a pastor. He gives him an action. He says, I want you to tend this group of people, my sheep. And he says, not as if they're Peter's flock. He's not giving him a flock. He's saying, I want you to tend something that belongs to me, that I purchased by my blood. Tend, feed, not to be a pastor or to be influential. Just tend the thing that I've called you to tend. These verses are not just about Peter being reinstated as a servant. This is about Jesus saying, these people are mine and I'm going to let you be part of something I'm doing. I'm tending this. You get to be included in what I'm doing, Peter, to shepherd the flock of God. Willingly, not domineering. Now, Peter, later in his life, he writes the book of First and Second Peter, and he describes what an elder, a shepherd, a pastor should be. And he says it like this. They should do it willingly, not domineering, but being examples to the flock. And then he says, at this moment, at the conclusion of all things in First Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, the one who's actually the shepherd of the feet, of all the sheep, when he appears, then you receive the unfading crown of glory. It's not before then. It's in that moment, Peter says. Then in verse 18, back in chapter 1, okay? Jesus moves from this question and answer and response between him and Peter to a prophecy about Peter's life. We find out it's a prophecy and he says it. Now, you would imagine that even though Peter had been grieved before, these words would have cut to the quick. They knew exactly where Peter was heading. And he describes his past and he describes his future in this moment. He looks at Peter and he says this, truly, truly, it's on the screen. I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another person will dress you and you can't carry you where you do not want to go. John goes on to say, this is to show what kind of death he was to glorify God in. And after he said that, he said, follow me. 
So, in lots of ways, this resembles a proverb that Peter probably would have been familiar with. Hey, when you're young, you get to dress yourself, but when you're old, other people are going to dress you and you're going to lose your freedom. And he's describing, he's referencing this proverb that had to do with age in life. And he's saying that's also what maturity looks like in Christ. When you're young, you get to choose and you go after Jesus and you choose what missions you're on and all these things. But when you're old, I'm leading you to a place of maturity where you have to surrender and eventually your arms are going to be laid out and you also are going to be crucified just as I was. Jesus' vision of maturity in the life of a believer, specifically in the life of Peter, is that he would be willing to suffer one day. That's what his description of Christian maturity is. It's not like everything going great. It's saying, hey, there's going to be things that I lead you into where you have no choice and you reach out your hands and you're taking to places that you don't want to go. So what does that mean? It means that the pinnacle of love for Christ is not what we're willing to profess in worship. But how this affection for him reorders every other affection. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to grow in maturity. That one day, this one affection for Christ reorders all the others. It reorders every other area. And Jesus' prophecy over Peter is a a proclamation, a vision of Christian maturity for everyone in this room that believes and for everyone in the future who would believe that eventually someone might pick up a cross for you. Now, the invitation of Jesus is pick up your cross daily and die to yourself and follow me. But eventually there may be somebody else that picks out your cross. There's places that you might have to go because you follow Jesus that are suffering beyond what any person has suffered, but not beyond Christ. So there's these appealing to things to follow him. Listen, there's a lot of reasons to follow Jesus, okay? Lots of reasons. There's lots of benefits. You don't just get the responsibility of the cross. You get redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, cleansing. It deals with our greatest needs spiritually. But the invitation to follow Jesus is also an invitation to die. Eventually, Jesus is going to lead you to places where the things that you would cling to about this temporary earth are are taken from your grasp. And it's personal. This following of Jesus is not something just for the company of people that would follow him. He's asking this question of an individual. Do you love me? (laughs) Will you follow me? Will you do the things that I'm doing? And in the moment where Peter feels like it's personal, look at what Peter says. He's like, wait a minute. What about this other guy? Listen, this is like demonstrated throughout all of humanity. If I tell any of my kids to do anything, they're like, what about the other sibling? What are you going to ask them to do? What about them? Look, you can just live anywhere, work anywhere. This is true of us. Peter hears that, hey, things are not going to be easy for me. And when Peter looks over and sees John, he says to Jesus, what about that man? And she's like, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You just follow me. You put one step in front of the other and stop worrying about how much further ahead you are than someone else or how far behind someone else is. You follow me. That's the invitation. And so I have three questions in conclusion. I know. 
It's kind of a busy application time today. First question is this. Hear the words of Jesus. Do you love me? Now, no comparisons. No comparisons. You can't look at anyone else. He's asking this question today. And if you think that an affection for God is not essential to walking with him, you're wrong. It's not what the scriptures describe about following him. What it means is that we love him. In fact, someone asked Jesus, what's the most important thing? And he said, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most important thing. It's, it, it begins with that. Everything else about the Christian life begins with this one question. It's absolutely essential that we can answer this question as Peter did. Yes, you know everything. You know what I'm like. You know the wavering nature of my heart. You know the fickleness of how I'm attentive to you and that I'm distracted. You know all these things and you know that I love you. But it's absolutely necessary that we can answer that question with a yes. It can't be, well, I believe, I think things about him. The question that Jesus would ask us today is this, do you love me? Do you have a sincere affection for me? Do you know? Now, if sometimes I ask people, hey, you still love God? <laughs> I mean, anybody that's like close enough friends with me, they know that I ask this question on a regular basis. You still love God? And then I follow up with this, what do you love about him? And if you don't have a question, an answer to that second one, you need to get to know him. You need to know who we're singing about. When you say, his goodness is running after me, can you provide examples of how you've experienced his goodness? Do you know what he's like? Do you know who you love? Do you love him? Second, was like it, he, after each of these questions, he says, if you love me, here's what you do. You do the things that I'm doing. You concern yourself with what I'm concerned with. You feed the sheep. You tend the lambs. You tend to the little ones. It, it, it appears to me that in Peter's story, that the evidence of love for Christ is an attentiveness to what he's accomplishing in the church. Now, I love hearing our voices lifted up in song. It's one of my favorite moments of every week. I mean, it moves me, and I know I'm easily moved, okay? And I hope I never get to not be. But Perhaps one of the more uh, costly evidences of our love and affection is how hard it is to fill volunteer roles. Jesus' command after each of these questions, do you love me, was tend the things that I'm tending. And that doesn't come after, hey, listen, every volunteer role is, is filled as far as I know, okay? There's some faithful people. But if you want to get in on what God's really doing, and talk about him. Tend the people who need to be tended. Tend his little lambs in, in bellwether kids. Hear the words of Jesus after this. You follow me. I want to read this before I move on to the second part. C.S. Lewis in his reflections on the Psalms. He was talking about the necessity of love, of affection for Christ. He says this, he is that object to admire which, or if you like, to appreciate, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, not to appreciate, which is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost it all. Now, I understand that's a busy quote. Let me just unpack it for a second. In other words, if you don't love God, then you've missed it. If you don't have a general appreciation for who he is, then you've missed the most important thing. 
if you don't have an admiration for who he is and what he's like, then you've missed it. The most important thing. It's like not being awake, okay? It's like the guy before he found the field with the treasure in it who didn't know there was a treasure there. You guys know the story in Matthew 13, 44? A guy, he finds this treasure in a field and then he realizes how valuable it is. He goes and sells everything else in order to obtain the field so he can get the treasure. For everyone who loves God, they've already seen that everything they've been clinging to is plastic. It's just no count. For us who love God, we've already seen how valuable the treasure is. It's so valuable to us. It's worth more than anything else it could cost us. Second command is this. Hear the words of Jesus. You follow me. In other words, it's not about how other people are doing it. He's not measuring your life in comparison to the people of your day. Okay? He's not going, well, you're doing good compared to your neighbors. You're doing good compared to your coworkers. You're doing good in, in the sense of other people around you. He's saying, no, you follow me. And when you say, what about them? He's saying, what about you? He's regularly bringing the attention back to you saying, what about you? And so I want to end with this question, okay? I've already gone over. It's this. What gives us this kind of love and resolve? So maybe some of you are like, maybe I don't love God. (laughs) Maybe I do not follow him. Maybe I'm not willing for my hands to be stretched out. And you're like, I don't know. What? How can that be? I love how John ends the book. He's like signing off, okay? with the Gospel of John. I love this because it provokes our imagination to wonder. And he says this in chapter 21, verse 25. And there's so also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <laughs> in other words, there's a degree to which John's wonder and amazement and just absolute just curiosity about, oh my goodness, can we even contain all the ways that the power of God demonstrated through Jesus could be displayed in the world? There's no way. So my answer to this question, and I believe the answer you'll find in the Bible, is that he provokes in those who believe and respond to him in this way a sense of greatness and wonder and worship. Jesus did so many things. And if you have an imagination and it's been redeemed by Jesus, it means that he's demonstrated that he loves you. Look, nobody in this room loves God unless you first come to grasp that he loves you. You cannot love him until you understand that he set his affections on you, that he demonstrated the weight of what he was willing to pay on the cross for your sins. He's saying, I love this group of people. He has an affection for you. And the only way that you will respond in like is that you first see it. You cannot love God unless you know he loves you. It's impossible. You can't conjure it up, get worked up into a frenzy when we sing about him. You can't do that until you realize that he's demonstrated his love for you in Christ Jesus. That's what gives us that kind of love and resolve. And when we see what Christ was willing to pay, there's a way in which he begins to cultivate that type of life in everyone who believes. And I love, I love this picture that John has at the end of the book. I can't, I can't even imagine the whole world whole world would not have enough space for the books of all that could be written about Jesus Christ and what he's done. It reminds me of this hymn by Frederick Lehman about the love of God. And I want to read it in closing today. 
The love of God, you can read along on the screen, it's okay. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Now this picture is so beautiful. Could we the, with ink the oceans fill? Were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole that stretched from sky to sky. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make that kind of abundant love for us just so clear so that we could respond in like and say, though I'm fickle, though I'm blind, yes, Lord, I love you. You know all things. I love you. And for those that are far from you, Father, I pray that to hear this invitation today to follow you, to see you, to be amazed with you, to be filled with wonder and then affection for who you are. And that affection for you would just reorder every other love. So we come before you now, humbly declaring you make dead things alive, and I'm one of those. Lord, I pray that this would be so of us today as we worship you in just a moment, that we would just be captivated, that we would be resolved to follow you. Only you can do it by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.